The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He's been said to have influenced everyone from Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII to Antonio Gramsci and Joseph Stalin. The list of names who have wrestled with his book Il Principe, or in English, The Prince, reads like a who's who of political philosophy. Rousseau, Hume, Gibbon, Smith, Locke, Hobbes, Montesquieu, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and many others. In literature, Shakespeare appears to have drawn upon his writings in creating the villainous Richard III, and Marlowe made him a character in one of his plays. He himself once described his day as being filled with long walks, setting snares to catch thrushes, listening to woodmen arguing over one thing or another, walking from grove to spring, a copy of Dante or Petrarch or Ovid in his pocket, and then, quote, In the evening... I return to my house and go into my study. At the door, I take off the clothes I have worn all day, mud-spotted and dirty, and put on regal and courtly garments. Thus appropriately clothed, I enter into the ancient courts of ancient men, where, being lovingly received, I feed on that food which alone is mine and which I was born for. I am not ashamed to speak with them, and to ask the reasons for their actions, and they courteously answer me. End quote. Who was this Italian guru steeped in the arts of diplomacy and war, communing with the ancients and addressing his thoughts to a hypothetical prince? How did a 500-year-old book come to have such relevance in so many different societies? And what can we draw from the prince today? We're looking at Niccolò Machiavelli today on the History of of literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for joining me. Let's start with an email to thank one of our patrons. To those who don't know, Patreon is a website that allows you to make a donation to help creative projects, such as the History of Literature podcast. Now you can go to patreon.com slash literature and help us keep the lights on here at the Jack Wilson Studios and buy our coffee. So, buy us a beer, buy us a coffee, however you'd like to think of it, using a standard credit card starting at just $1 a month and going up to whatever you'd like, basically. That's patreon.com slash literature. This week, we're thanking new Patreon Robert Stewart, who also sent along this email. Subject line, great podcast, exclamation mark. Hello, Jack. First, just let me say thank you. I have recently graduated with an English degree, and I'll, I'll uh, not disclose the college here. I recently graduated with an English degree from a certain college, and your show has been inspiring me to go back for a master's. Your knowledge and love for literature is a helpful reminder to why I chose to study it in the first place. Also, you have inspired me to tackle Ulysses. Honestly, this is my fourth time trying to read it. At first, I tried to read it because I felt I had to, but now I am reading it because I want to. So thank you. I truly appreciate the show. I've signed up for a Patreon donation, and if I could give more, I would. I hope the show will keep going well past the one million downloads you are working for. Thank you, Robert. P.S. Tell Mike he's dope, too. 
Well, thank you, Robert. I have passed along the news to Mike. <laughs> First, when I read that, I thought it said, tell Mike he's a dope, too, <laughs> which would take me down along with Mike in the postscript to the email. But I uh, actually, I reread it quickly and saw that it was saying that he's dope, too, which is a compliment. He was glad to hear it. <laughs> Not many words can be changed by a single article. Like dope and a dope. Can you think of any? Took me a while, but I did think of one other. This was thanks to my friend Roberto, a different Robert, and his Italian roommate Vito. Vito was, this was in Bologna. Vito was kind of a ladies' man, and he loved talking to American women in his English, which was largely learned from MTV and was very poor. One night at a party, we heard him say to one of our friends, you are a beautiful fly. I think he meant that she was fly, not a fly. In any case, many thanks for the email, Robert, and I am so pleased you're diving back into literature. It's a wonderful pursuit, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for signing up to support the show. You have no idea how important that is to me and how grateful I am. And for the rest of you, please do consider signing up at patreon.com slash literature. And let's all take our lead from Robert, who's tackling Ulysses for the fourth time, and think about our own lives and how much we have yet to do. A lot of news in the world today, and this week it's a little hard not to talk about politics. Everything is happening so fast. It's dominating everyone's minds, at least here in the States. We have a president who's been issuing some desperate tweets. We have potential news from his investigators. Indictments came down. It's a good week to talk about politics of a different sort. Literary politics, literary version of it. Machiavelli is one of the world's most successful writers of all time. If you count influence, he's fascinating, compelling, repulsive in some ways. His work gives us something to consider. And that's putting it a little mildly. I've been reading Machiavelli for a few decades now. He was recommended to me by someone in college. I was looking for things to read over the summer, things to stimulate my brain as I was working in the industrial laundry and painting houses and working at the carnival, my summer job. A lot of manual labor, a lot of driving, and I wanted things to wrestle with. I had Smith and Marx under my belt and Thucydides and some other works of history and political economy. So I asked around the dorm, and one of those brainiacs I went to college with said, Machiavelli, the prince. It was a good choice. And Machiavelli comes up now and then in our discourse, as Machiavelli tends to do whenever we have a Dick Cheney around. Someone who practices the art of real politique. We'll get to all those ideas in a little bit. But let me just say... I came into Machiavelli this time around as I was preparing for this show, and I thought I might have a good angle on it. I thought I might ar- be arguing that we're in a different world now, in a world of 24-hour news channels, of news with an agenda. And with Twitter, the ideas in Machiavelli's The Prince had perhaps just been overrun. He was writing 500 years ago in Florence, but surprisingly, the model of a prince held up for Hundreds of years, and by model here, I mean the central tension that runs through Machiavelli. How do you govern most effectively? Your image matters. Are you loved? Are you feared? 
Is one better than the other? Which one works best for getting what you want? For assuming power, for staying in power, for accomplishing your goals? That's at the heart of Machiavelli. That plus the management of an image. Set aside what you're actually doing. What if you can control what people think you're doing? If you want to be viewed as generous, you can give things away. Right? Free stuff for everyone. The more generous you are, you could give more away and more and more. Give it back to the people soon enough. You're beloved, the greatest, most generous leader ever. But then, Machiavelli points out, you'll eventually run out of stuff to give away. You'll be hampered, weak, unable to provide basic services. And what will happen then? People will suddenly think you're no longer generous. What happened to all that generosity you showed last year? But what if you only gave away a little bit, but did so in a way that made everyone think you were actually being very generous? Wouldn't that be better? What if you were able to give away nothing at all, but people still thought you were generous? What if you could take from them, but everyone still thought you were generous? Wouldn't that be even better? And our gut reaction is, the people will figure that out. The people will know better. It's like Eddie Haskell. Does anyone know Eddie Haskell these days? Is that too outdated? It's not my era, but it sort of was. The reruns were on all over the place when I was a kid. Leave it to Beaver reruns. He was on that show. He was the the perfect snake the friend of Wally, Beaver's older brother. And Eddie Haskell had more schemes and was just generally a rogue. He was always trying to talk Wally into do something wrong. And then in would come somebody's parents and he would turn beautiful, angelic. Yes, Mrs. Cleaver. He's staring at himself in the mirror, singing some rock and roll song about getting chicks fixing his hair, a devilish rake. And Mrs. Cleaver walks in and she says, Oh, hi, Eddie. Were you singing? And he says, Oh, yes, Mrs. Cleaver. I was just practicing for the Glee Club. And we, watching the show, think, Oh, Eddie Haskell, he's such a hypocrite. And we think, that's no way to be. Everyone sees through him. Mrs. Cleaver rolls her eyes. She's not fooled. People know when you're doing this. And Machiavelli, who had seen the ways of the world and the examples of rulers and the hearts of the people they lead, Machiavelli said, hey, hey, don't assume that to be the case. Don't assume that everyone sees through Eddie Haskell. Don't assume they won't reach the wrong conclusion about the leader's true personality, the leader's true motives, the leader's actual actions. In fact, that happens all the time that the people are deceived, and here are the examples of it. And I thought, maybe that's changed now. Maybe that's changed. Because when a president tweets, when he's out there in the early morning letting loose, letting everyone know what's on his or her mind, can you really hide any longer? We're not talking about sending out your spin doctors and your propaganda agents, get a few flattering profiles out there, Start some buzz to put your actions in the light in which you wish to be portrayed. We're seeing internal thoughts laid bare, exposed. Is that disconnect, is that development enough to end Machiavelli? Have we surpassed him now? And as I read Machiavelli this time around, I thought, maybe so. 
Maybe so. And then I realized, no. No, we haven't surpassed Machiavelli because Machiavelli's not just talking about a prince and the the cultivation of an image. He's talking about people. Not just a ruler, but the ruled. Machiavelli isn't surpassed by a president who tweets because at the bottom of everything, he's not talking about princes or presidents at all, but the people. He's not talking about them. He's talking about us. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Niccolo Machiavelli was born in 1469 in Florence. He got a job as a clerk in 1494, and from 1498 to 1512, he held a position as secretary to the Second Chancery of the Commune of Florence, a committee of magistrates in charge of internal and war affairs. Florence was fighting with Pisa at the time, so he was working on military problems and diplomatic missions. And he went on to serve as an emissary in missions to King Louis XII of France, Cesare Borgia, and Pope Julius II. Along the way, he was developing his views on what worked and what didn't. This was a contentious period with lots of principates fl- f- sorry, fighting with one another and fighting internally and fighting to win the support of the people. There was a lot for Machiavelli to observe, and he was a very sharp observer. He was also a brilliant writer, and one of his first tricks, one of his specialties, is to describe his advice and observations in a first-person, authoritative account. It makes him very engaging and seemingly wise. I was there. I know. I've seen when this worked. I've seen the dangers when this tactic went wrong. But he's also very absorbing, concise, gripping. His analogies and examples are well-chosen. He sets things out reasonably in a reasonable tone. His most famous work, The Prince, is a masterpiece of what it's setting out to do, and it's still extremely readable. And yet, as Isaiah Berlin noted in his own masterwork of an essay in 1971, there is a violent disparity of judgments regarding Machiavelli. 
Berlin points out that Machiavelli is not the first to say that the wicked sometimes prevail. That's seen in the Bible, Herodotus, Thucydides, Plato, and Aristotle, to name just a few. And yet, he seems to have produced the strongest reactions. He, Machiavelli, has been the most identified with this position, and the most influential and the most interpreted. He's been viewed by critics and scholars and philosophers and statesmen in wildly different ways. For some, he's a satirist who could not literally have meant what he said. For others, including Spinoza and Rousseau, he was writing a cautionary tale because, in Machiavelli's other writings, he was a passionate patriot, a democrat, a believer in liberty. Others argue that the prince is an attack on the Christian church and its principles, a defense of pagan life. Still others say Machiavelli is an anguished humanist, a moralist, who laments the vices of men. Others say he's a peace-loving humanist who's trying to promote order and stability by disciplining the aggressive elements in our nature. Some have argued that he viewed Cesare Borgia as the man who, if only he had lived, might have saved Italy. And then people say, no, no, no. Machiavelli <laughs> viewed Cesare as incompetent and a failure. He must have shared this view, and he was actually talking about another ruler altogether. Some say he's a morally neutral scientist, a technocrat, an ethical and political agnostic. Others say he's not coldly calculating, but passionate to the point of unbelievability. Some say he mirrored his age, others that he was a man rooted in the lessons of history, and others that he was a visionary, someone far ahead of his time. Some say he can only be understood as a player in the internecine struggles that ravaged Florence. On the other hand, say some, the context doesn't matter at all. He's timeless. The list goes on and on of the way the Reviewers and critics and interpreters of Machiavelli's work have disagreed. Is he a tough-minded cynic? A detached aesthete? A progressive advocate? A stalwart conservative? Did he view the state as a work of art? Or the state as dirty business? The commonest view of him is the one held by the Elizabethans, that he's the teacher of evil. An Iago, someone who leads men down a vile path by appealing to their basest instincts and encouraging them to be ruthless and deceitful in gaining what they want. Bertrand Russell said it was a handbook for gangsters. Mussolini called it a guidebook for statesmen. You could probably switch those two quotes around and have the exact same meaning. But here's the wonderful insight to which we owe Isaiah Berlin a debt of gratitude. All these contradictions, all these different views of who Machiavelli was and what the prince was really up to, what he was trying to do with the prince. And yet, in spite of all that, in spite of all that disagreement, the one thing that everyone agrees upon is that Machiavelli is one of the clearest writers who ever lived. <laughs> They say that, even as they set out interpretations that differ wildly from the interpretations held by others who also say that Machiavelli is the clearest writer who ever lived. The Prince is a masterpiece of forthright, easily understood prose, and yet it sits uneasily in any interpretive framework. Maybe that's part of its appeal, not just because 
everyone is enjoying wrestling with the ideas and seeing both sides of an issue the way you and I are, listener. But because everyone can find what they want in there by exposing humanity, the human condition, human psychology, the differences between what humans say they want and what they really want, how they think they should act or will act, and how they actually do. And even at the basic level of how the world is and how the world ought to be. By seeming so clear-eyed, Machiavelli lets us adapt his work to what we think. This is what everyone says? Well, this is how it really is. That's a very adaptable point of view. That's very, very adaptable, and it's appealing. Okay, so let's stop talking about the influences and interpretations and look at some passages in Machiavelli. He wrote other works, too. He wrote a short novel and a couple of plays, including one called La Mandragola, the Mandrake, that is still performed. He also wrote several booklets and other works of history and observations of contemporary events and a major work called Discourses on the First Ten Books of Livy. But what we're really going to talk about is the prince, and in particular, the part from chapter 15 to the end. The first 14 books of the prince discuss different forms of government, which does give us some insight into Machiavelli's thinking, as far as we can take his word for what he's thinking. And they're worth reading, but his reputation is really based on the second half of the book, which is where he looks at the societies that have come and gone, risen and fallen, and distills his observations into some advice addressed to a hypothetical prince about how to be an effective leader. Here's a passage from chapter 15 is also called On the Things for Which Men, and Especially Princes, Are Praised or Censured. Quote, Because I know that many have written on this topic, I fear that when I too write I shall be thought presumptuous, because in discussing it I break away completely from the principles laid down by my predecessors. But, since it is my purpose to write something useful to an attentive reader, I think it more effective to go back to the practical truth of the subject than to depend on my fancies about it. And many have imagined republics and principalities that never have been seen or known to exist in reality. For there is such a difference between the way men live and the way they ought to live that anybody who abandons what is for what ought to be will learn something that will ruin rather than preserve him. Because anyone who determines to act in all circumstances the part of a good man, must come to ruin among so many who are not good. Hence, if a prince wishes to maintain himself, he must learn how to be not good, and to use that ability, or not, as is required. Leaving out of account, then, things about an imaginary prince, and considering things that are true, I say that all men, when they are spoken of, and especially princes, because they are set higher, are marked with some of the qualities that bring them either blame or praise. To wit, one man is thought liberal, another stingy. One is thought open-handed, another grasping. One cruel, the other compassionate. One is a breaker of faith, the other reliable. One is effeminate and cowardly, the other vigorous and spirited. One is philanthropic, the other egotistic. One is lascivious, the other chaste. One is straightforward, the other crafty. One hard, the other easy to deal with. One is firm, the other unsettled. One is religious, the other unbelieving 
and so on. And I know that everybody will admit that it would be very praiseworthy for a prince to possess all of the above-mentioned qualities that are considered good. But since he is not able to have them or to observe them completely, because human conditions do not allow him to, it is necessary that he be prudent enough to understand how to avoid getting a bad name. Because he is given to those vices that will deprive him of his position, he should also, if he can, guard himself from those vices that will not take his place away from him. But if he cannot do it, he can with less anxiety let them go. Moreover, he should not be troubled if he gets a bad name because of vices without which it will be difficult for him to preserve his position. I say this because, if everything is considered, it will be seen that some things seem to be virtuous, but if they are put into practice, will be ruinous to him. Other things seem to be vices, yet if put into practice, will bring the prince security and well-being. End quote. You can hear what Machiavelli is doing here. He sets this out. It's so reasonable. <laughs> We're drawn to this, right? What he's telling us here is rethink things, prince, leader of men. It would be nice if you could be good all the time, but you know what? The people aren't good, and they're not going to let you be good. They're going to reward people who are bad sometimes. So maybe you just need to make your peace with that. Maybe you need to live with that. Don't be a sucker. You're going to lose all your power if you do. Such a wonderful passage. It's so simple. The prose, straightforward and reasonable. It's a great trick of Machiavelli. That's why he was so reviled by the Elizabethans. He makes even the harshest of actions seem just full of common sense. He can talk about, I mean, he didn't in this passage. This passage just sets it forth. You better get comfortable. It's almost like your duty. You'd better be ready to act in ways that are viewed with disfavor. Might be the only way you can hang on to power. And it might be the only way you can do good things. He can go on. He could talk about a massacre in this sort of plain language. It's a formulation like, you could do A or B. A is likely to result in X, and B is likely to result in Y. Since Y is better than X, it would be prudent to do B. But, but his B might be something like, kill all the rebels and their family members. It really is the language of Iago. But much of the time, we're not talking about massacres, but just how to be generous, how to be effective. You could imagine in our world this being about universal health care or lowering the social security age or changing the tax code. Now, let's move to chapter 16 on liberality and parsimony. I talked about this chapter a little bit already, liberality and parsimony or generosity and stinginess and how Machiavelli describes the dangers of being viewed as overly generous, especially when you deplete your own wealth, because you might run out of money and lose your power and disappoint your subjects. You could be the most generous person in the world and end up hated. A reputation for stinginess might be better than when you give something away. <laughs> then when you give something away, if you're stingy, people will think that you're being very generous. It's not your true nature. 
not something they're accustomed to, and suddenly they're getting things from you? Wonderful. How generous. We see this in families, don't we? Isn't that how you feel about certain people, certain parents? Haven't you seen this before? Someone is a curmudgeon. Suddenly they're very kind, and they seem even kinder than the person who's kind all the time. Here's another passage from chapter 16. He's talking about the need to be generous, sometimes the need not to be generous. He says, somebody may answer, many who have been thought very liberal, by liberal he means generous, many who have been thought very liberal have been princes and done great things with their armies. I answer, the prince spends either his own property and that of his subjects or that of others. In the first case, he ought to be frugal. In the second, he ought to abstain from no sort of liberality. When he marches with his army and lives on plunder, loot, and ransom, a prince controls the property of others. To him, liberality is essential, for without it, his soldiers would not follow him. You can be a free giver of what does not belong to you or your subjects, as were Cyrus, Caesar, and Alexander, because to spend the money of others does not decrease your reputation, but adds to it. It is only the spending of your own money that hurts you. End quote. It sounds so reasonable, right? Don't tax people to give it away. And don't spend your own money. Don't give away your own money. <laughs> if you tax people and then give it away, you're not adding to your reputation as being generous. You're hurting everybody that you're taking the taxes from. And if you just give away your own money, you'll end up poor and weak. But, aha, march with your army, loot and plunder, that's free money. That's money you should give away. Be generous with it. That can only help you. You'll have a great reputation for being generous while you're spending the money of others. What is he leaving out there? <laughs> Some may say that there's a lot of pain and suffering that are going to go along with this looting and plundering, not just to the people you're conquering, but also your own subjects, the armies that are following you. But also, we're kind of far away from a a Kantian view of the world, right? Of morality, where your actions need to be moral. This is completely amoral. This is just the ends, justifying the means, ruthlessly pragmatic, spend the money of others. Here's the problem. Let me set out the dilemma for you. You can't spend your money. You can't spend the money of your subjects. Why don't you go find some money from others? Spend that. <laughs> oh, Machiavelli is so much fun to read to think about why he's wrong, why he's right. And is he still right? Is he outdated now? It's one thing to be walking around from city to city in, in Italy 500 years ago. It's another thing to have modern warfare, but doesn't that come up? Doesn't that come up when leaders are making decisions? If you're invading a country with plenty of natural resources, whether it's oil or a, a coastline or precious minerals, don't leaders calculate paying for their endeavor with those natural resources and being able to silence critics 
with their newfound wealth, right? That's a Machiavellian analysis updated for warfare today. You can see the rulers calculating this, maybe not in these terms. Maybe they don't say it out loud, at least to the public. But they make these general considerations. We know that they do. It's one factor among many. Makes us think, doesn't it? Seeing it set out this way by Machiavelli, it seems so logical, pragmatic. It almost seems like he's daring the rulers sometimes. Just just be real. Just work in the real world. Don't work in this fantasy world where you want to be good all the time. You can't do that. Have the courage. Have the internal strength to be bad and get things done. Let's go to chapter 17. We're really teeing up chapter 17. Being loved versus being feared. It's a wonderful chapter. I'm tempted to read the whole thing. Should you be loved or feared? What works best with your people? How about your enemies? Here he's really talking about your people, your subjects. But it could also be your family members, your employees, anything. It's about leading other people. And enemies, you could see how I'm extrapolating. I'm thinking of something our current president has flirted with. The idea that other nations should think you might be capable of anything. Nixon had this idea too. Let them think I'm a madman who might drop the bomb. It'll keep them in line. Make them think that. Make them think I'm not weak. I'm a little irrational. Abusers do this, and bullies, and sometimes athletes. You see this dynamic play out? I'm liable to flip out on you. I'll turn the rage up to 11. So we tiptoe around them. Leaders who say, I'm willing to torture, to shoot first and ask questions later. I'm willing to to take what you call morality, and I'll absorb that to get things done. I'll subvert that if I need to. It's a way of control. It's a way of keeping people in line. And what's the downside? That the people don't love you? Well, Machiavelli considers this. He knows a lot of leaders will say, well, if I do that, people will hate me. I don't want to be trying to hang on to power when people hate me. Machiavelli works up to this with some specific examples. Then he sets out the problem. Quote, A prince ought not to be troubled by the stigma of cruelty acquired in keeping his subjects united and faithful. By giving a very few examples of cruelty, he can be more truly compassionate than those who, through too much compassion, allow disturbances to continue, from which arise murders or acts of plunder. Lawless acts are injurious to a large group, but the executions ordered by the prince injure a single person. The new prince, above all other princes, cannot possibly avoid the name of cruel because new states are full of perils. Dido and Virgil puts it thus, Hard circumstances and the newness of my realm force me to do such things and to keep watch and ward over all my lands. All the same, he should be slow in believing and acting and should make no one afraid of him. 
His procedure should be so tempered with prudence and humanity that too much confidence does not make him incautious and too much suspicion does not make him unbearable. All this gives rise to a question for debate. Is it better to be loved than to be feared or the reverse? I answer that a prince should wish for both, but because it is difficult to reconcile them, I hold that it is much more secure to be feared than to be loved, if one of them must be given up. The reason for my answer is that one must say of men generally that they are ungrateful, mutable, pretenders, and dissemblers, prone to avoid danger, thirsty for gain. So long as you benefit them, they are all yours. As I said above, they offer you their blood, their property, their lives, their children, when the need for such things is remote. But when need comes upon you, they turn around. So if a prince has relied wholly on their words and is lacking in other preparations, he falls. For friendships that are gained with money and not with greatness and nobility of spirit are deserved but not possessed. And in the nick of time, one cannot avail himself of them. Men hesitate less to injure a man who makes himself loved than to injure one who makes himself feared, for their love is held by a chain of obligation, which, because of men's wickedness, is broken on every occasion for the sake of selfish profit. But their fear is secured by a dread of punishment, which never fails you. (laughs) Uh, See what I mean? Machiavelli saying, The problem, Prince, is not you. The problem is them. People are, they may think they want to love you rather than fear you, but they're going to behave better if they fear you. That's going to get you more of what you want, and it's going to hold you in good stead in good times and in bad. Their fear of you will never fail you. It's an awful way to think of the world, isn't it? Is there some truth to it? Is it completely true? That's for us to wrestle with, isn't it, listener? That's why we're doing this. That's why That's why we love literature, thinking through these ideas. Okay, let's move to chapter 18, which is just an incredible chapter. This is chapter 18, being honest. I'm going to read two paragraphs here. Listen for how reasonable all this sounds. It's hard to disagree with it. It doesn't seem urgent and unhinged. The rantings of a madman... It also doesn't apologize. It just sets things out very plainly, persuading us with its calm tone and logic. Quote, It is not necessary, then, for a prince really to have all the virtues mentioned above, but it is very necessary to seem to have them. I will even venture to say that they damage a prince who possesses them and always observes them. But if he seems to have them, they are useful. I mean that he should seem compassionate, trustworthy, humane, honest, and religious, and actually be so. But yet, he should have his mind so trained that, when it is necessary not to practice these virtues, he can change to the opposite and do it skillfully. It is to be understood that a prince, especially a new prince, cannot observe all the things because of which men are considered good, because he is often obliged, if he wishes to maintain his government, to act contrary to faith, contrary to charity, contrary to humanity, 
contrary to religion. It is therefore necessary that he have a mind capable of turning to whatever direction the winds of fortune and the variations of affairs require. And, as I said above, that he should not depart from what is morally right, if he can observe it, but should know how to adopt what is bad when he is obliged to. A prince, then, should be very careful that there does not issue from his mouth anything that is not full of the above-mentioned five qualities. To those who see and hear him, he should seem all compassion, all faith, all honesty, all humanity, all religion. There's nothing more necessary to make a show of possessing than this last quality. For men in general judge more by their eyes than by their hands. Everybody is fitted to see, few to understand. Everybody sees what you appear to be. Few make out what you really are. And these few do not dare to oppose the opinion of the many who have the majesty of the state to confirm their view. In the actions of all men, and especially those of princes, where there is no court to which to appeal, people think of the outcome. A prince needs only to conquer and to maintain his position. The means he has used will always be judged honorable and will be praised by everybody because the crowd is always caught by appearance and by the outcome of events. And the crowd is all there is in the world. There is no place for the few when the many have room enough. End quote. Doesn't... Doesn't that seem like good advice? Don't you think that would appeal to a certain type of person who's ambitious, wants to assume power? They know they have to step on people to get there. They've probably been doing that all their life or seeing it happen. And here's Machiavelli saying, that's right. Don't think there's a big discrepancy between being good. Just think there's a discrepancy between how people seem, and how they really are. Don't be afraid of that. Embrace it. That's the, the real you and the real secret to power. A guidebook for statesmen, says Mussolini. A gangster's handbook, says Bertrand Russell. So that should give you some sense of Machiavelli and what we gain when we wrestle with him. He's worth reading. Definitely, it's short, the prince is very pleasurable, and your mind will be fully engaged at all times. Now I want to shift gears a little bit here and read you something else. This was talked about a lot here in the context of the Iraq War here in the States. But I think it's also relevant for other discussions, like, for example, the recent protests during the National Anthem by NFL players. This is an interview by Gustav Gilbert. Gilbert? of Hermann Göring. Göring, of course, was Hitler's deputy, the Reich Marshal, and head of the German Luftwaffe. Gilbert was an intelligence officer who interviewed him after the Nuremberg trials, and later Gilbert recorded this. their conversation as just an astonishing passage. <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard for me to wrestle with this passage. I'm so floored by it. Gilbert writes, quote, We got around to the subject of war again, and I said that 
Contrary to his attitude, I did not think that the common people are very thankful for leaders who bring them war and destruction. Why, of course the people don't want war, Goring shrugged. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war when the best that he can get out of it is to come back to his farm in one piece? Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia, nor in England, nor in America, nor, for that matter, in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it is a democracy or a fascist dictatorship or a parliament or a communist dictatorship. There is one difference, I pointed out. In a democracy, the people have some say in the matter through their elected representatives, and in the United States, only Congress can declare wars. Oh, that is all well and good. But voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to do the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them that they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. It's a, it's a chilling passage, the way... Goring viewed it as so easy to get people into a war, drag them along, get them to do the leader's bidding. And also, one can say, it's easy to turn people against one another. It's easy to get people upset at one another using some of the same tactics. They're not patriots. They're weakening the country. They're the problem. Look at them. Focus on them. You can hear Machiavelli running underneath all of this. Sure. Why not? Get the people to think this or that, and you can get what you want. Your poll numbers will go up. It's effective. We have a president who's scrambling now, looking for distractions for something or... Someone else to blame, someone else to to take the heat. He's trying out different possibilities. Maybe this investigation will harm his ability to deal with foreign leaders. <laughs> that came out. Unnamed spokesperson for the White House said the president is concerned that this investigation is going to harm his ability to deal with foreign leaders. You hear that? Exposing the country to danger? Isn't that what he's saying? That didn't really go anywhere. He said, This is a dirty trick. This is something the Democrats cooked up. <laughs> you can hear these, these ideas being floated out there. Which one is enough to give me cover for what I want to do? which is to fire this special prosecutor, get rid of this ball and chain around my neck, this thing dragging me down. We heard this in the Iraq War, too. Weapons of mass destruction? It's not the best reason, maybe. It was the one we all agreed on. This is, <laughs> this is from a 2003 article in The Independent. Quote, The Bush administration focused on alleged weapons of mass destruction. 
as the primary justification for toppling Saddam Hussein by force because it was politically convenient, a top-level official at the Pentagon has acknowledged. Quote, for bureaucratic reasons, we settled on one issue, weapons of mass destruction, because it was the one reason everyone could agree on, Mr. Wolfowitz tells the magazine. There's Machiavelli in that, right? What do you what do you actually think? What do you seem to think? You seem to think that they're being level headed, defending the country. Here's another quote from that era. This is former Homeland Secretary sorry, former Homeland Security Secretary Tom Ridge who, quote, claims in a new book that he was pressured by other members of President George W. Bush's cabinet to raise the nation's terror alert level just before the 2004 presidential election. Ridge says he objected to raising the security level despite the urgings of former Defense Secretary Donald H. Rumsfeld and then Attorney General John Ashcroft, according to a publicity release from Ridge's publisher. He said the episode convinced him to follow through with his plans to leave the administration. He resigned on November 30th, 2004. In 2005, months after he resigned, Ridge said his agency has been the most had been the most reluctant to raise the alert level. There were times when some people were really aggressive about raising it and we said, "For that?" he said during a panel discussion in May 2005. But his book appears to be the first time he publicly attributes some of the pressure to politics. Ridge writes in the book that a newly discovered bin Laden tape alone did not justify a change in the nation's security threat level, but describes, quote, a vigorous, some might say dramatic, discussion on October 30th to do so. There was absolutely no support for that position within our department. None, he writes. I wondered, is this about security or politics? Post-election analysis demonstrated a significant increase in the president's approval rating in the days after the raising of the threat level. The Homeland Security Department, which Ridge says was the first, which sorry, which Ridge was the first person to lead, faced criticism in 2004 from Democrats who alleged that raising the alert level was designed to boost support for the Bush administration during an election year. <laughs> Those colors, they'd go from yellow to orange to red, and the poll numbers would rise. The people can be dragged along. Just tell them they're being attacked. Straight out of the playbook, we could trace this all back to Machiavelli, can't we? He would know what this was all about, wouldn't he? The ends justify the means. Or the ends get forgotten about. Here's Carl Rove in 2004. This was a book uh, later revealed that Carl Rove is the aide in this book. The aide said that guys like me were, quote, in what we call the reality-based community, which he defined as people who believe that solutions emerge from your judicious study of discernible reality. That's not the way the world really works anymore, he continued. We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. 
And while you're studying that reality, judiciously, as you will, we'll act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too. And that's how things will sort out. We are history's actors. And you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. Hmm. <laughs> Wouldn't Machiavelli love this quote? Wouldn't he appreciate and understand the furious efforts to pit Americans against one another, divide and conquer, to the victor shall go the spoils? That's you, Prince. That's you. It's not you. It's the people. This is how you maintain your position. We had a a week, two weeks, where the NFL was the biggest issue. Is that really the biggest issue? Was it so big that a vice president was instructed to fly from California to Indianapolis for a game so that he could walk out on the protest? (laughs) He knew they were going to protest. He flew there anyway. Five minutes in, before the game even started, he was walking out. What is trying to be accomplished with that? What would Machiavelli say was happening? Go to war. Get a boost in the polls. Get people on board with unpopular new legislation. Stifle an investigation. Distract. Divide. We're in the middle of history being made. We're in the middle of arrests, indictments. It's an incredible moment in America. News on Friday night. Last on Friday night, there were news. There was news that arrests were coming. And then we had a weekend to wonder and discuss. That's for the citizens. For politicians, it's a weekend to position and frame and try to get ahead of the issues. Try to get the news spun in some favorable way or try to make some different news, something to distract from what's going to be a bad news cycle on Monday. So we heard a range of spin that, no, this isn't about the Russians and collusion or meddling in the election. This is about Hillary Clinton. Do something, Trump tweeted. We've forgotten about it. It's like two days later we've forgotten about that. Do something, he tweeted in all caps. It's an astonishing tweet for the leader of the free world, most powerful man in the world, to say, do something. <laughs> Here's the tweet. Let me, read the, let me read it all. It's two tweets combined here. The Dems are using this terrible and bad for our country witch hunt for evil politics, but the R's are now fighting back like never before. There is so much guilt by Democrats Clinton. And now the facts are pouring out. Do something. (laughs) Arrests are coming. A campaign manager, other advisors, the circle titans. Do something. J.K. Rowling responded with a tweet that I thought was brilliant. She might be the best tweeter out there, I think. (laughs) Not sure anybody's better than J.K. Rowling. Her tweet was, Nothing expresses calm confidence better than a caps-locked scream of do something. (laughs) Ah, Ms. Rowling. 
Anytime you want to appear on the show, standing invitation. <laughs> you can come on. We'll do a 30-second interview. <laughs> do you see the struggle here? What are we talking about? Why are we talking about it? This is Machiavelli in action. Here's a reporter, a host, Joy Reid, over the weekend. This is something you rarely hear. Here she is talking about the Uranium One issue. Now, people who aren't familiar with the Uranium One issue, maybe some of you are very familiar with it, depending on which, what news channel you watch. This is an attempt to get us talking about anything other than the special counsel and the indictments that were on the way. It's kind of a, a tenuous connection to Hillary Clinton. It's a way of demonizing her again, bring out the old demon, see if you can get people focused on her. <laughs> Somebody pointed out that, boy, wouldn't it be awful if the Russians got nuclear capacity? <laughs> the connection to Hillary and the reasons for the it's all... A little hard to follow. So here's the context. This is over the weekend. We know now that there had been the announcement that the special counsel uh, indictments were on the way, and now we know that it was Trump's advisors. We know that these indictments alleged facts and that one advisor had already pled guilty. So here's Joy Reid discussing uh, Trump supporters' Scandal, the Uranium One scandal that the Trump supporter was saying, this is what we should be talking about, not these forthcoming indictments. That's that's not news. Should be talking about the the scandal here, the real scandal, Uranium One. And here's Joy Reid. The last week or two that there was a Russian spy who was getting close to Hillary Clinton. This was reported in the mainstreams. You have Bill Clinton, is who is We're not going to get to real, but I want to ask you a couple fact-based questions. Sure. Who got the money when the Canadian company was sold to the Russian company, the Uranium one? Uh, who received the money? I presume the company, but look. Yeah. Okay, there. second question. Mm-hmm. Who approved the sale? Because when any sort of uranium or any company that sells sort of sensitive type products, and by the way, the uranium that's mined in these Mines, right, yep. is for nuclear power. It's not for nuclear bombs, right? But when that happens, there is an organization called CFIS that approves it. Do you know what CFIS stands yes, for? Yes, absolutely. What does it stand for? Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. How many people sit on that committee? Nine members. How many have to approve a deal like this? Uh, all nine, nine of them, I believe. How many absolutely. approve this deal? Uh, nine of them. Did Hillary Clinton sit personally on that deal? No, but she, she did pushed not. for it. She, no, she and did you know not. What? I'd no, 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 hold on. Here. Who is the person yep. who donated to Hillary Clinton who is related to and had an investment in Uranium One? What is that person's name? Do you remember their name? Uh, they are board members of Uranium One, donated up to a hundred, I think it's $143 million. Tom Fustra. And when did Tom Fustra, did he own any assets in Uranium One at the time that Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State? You know, I don't know that, but here's what I would... Sold them Here's what I'd like to know. So hold on one second. No, he sold them years before. So what you're talking about is a deal that nine members of CFIS approved unanimously, none of whom was Hillary Clinton. You have a donor who separately gave Hillary Clinton donations at a time when she was not Secretary of State. The two things cross in the night. They have no relation to each other. The members of CFIS have been very clear that Hillary Clinton had nothing to do with approving that deal. She would have had to strong arm eight other people in order to get them to unanimously approve the deal. And ultimately, the president of the United States would intervene if they saw any 
problem. The safest people say now, if that deal came before them today, they would still approve it unanimously. There's actually nothing about the deal that's controversial. The only reason we're talking about it is because, per your even uh, admission, which I think is very honest, the RNC would like us to be talking about this now. I want to bring Catherine Rempel in on that. On that. Wow. This is what happens when you see through Machiavelli. When you see through the prince. <sighs> the only reason we're talking about this now is because you want us to be talking about this now. This is the danger that Machiavelli cautions about. You can be generous or not, but you damn well better pay attention to whether you're viewed as generous. Loved? Feared? Make sure you're in control of just how much they love you and just how much they fear you. And seem to be what you need to be. I used to do this with my students where I would read a Bill Clinton transcript. How you could hear his struggles to stay honest. This was right after the Lewinsky scandal. You could hear him trying to stay honest. But also completely deny something that had actually happened. This was the famous, I did not have sex with that woman transcript. And you could just hear the equivocation in the way that he framed all of his answers. You could hear it. It was like a child being caught by a parent. It was so obvious. It was so obvious what was happening, how he was trying to to distract us and, and come up with answers that would be still truthful. Maybe his problem there was that he didn't follow Machiavelli enough. Maybe he needed to be a better liar, not be so transparent, not be so equivocating, not choose his words in such a lawyerly way. He wasn't under oath in that interview. Maybe that would have helped. It's so obvious when we're being gulled when we're being deceived, unless you don't want to believe, unless you want to be deceived, unless you're prepared for it, unless it beats the alternative. Trying to avoid politics here, trying not to take a position, except to say this. We are at a crossroads here in America. We're going to have different paths ahead of us, different choices to make. Some people are going to be in the streets marching. Some will be angry on the internet. Some will be full of hate and some full of love and some full of confusion. We're going to have to figure out what to do about our elections, our leadership. Do we support them? Do we not support them? Do we condemn them? Do we not condemn? And the leaders will be figuring out what to do about us. Lie to us. Be honest. Trick us. Appeal to our patriotism, our sense of loyalty, scare us. We're all going to be arguing bitterly and demanding change, or not, and accusing one another of treason or not loving one's country or the country's values. But let's remember one thing. We are not princes. We are the people. We're not the rulers. We're the ruled The princes, those who are in power, or who are close to power, or who want power, they will tell us one thing. It's up to us to decide whether that's true, and whether it's right, and whether it's good, 
and whether it's what we want. Teddy Roosevelt said, quote, Patriotism means to stand by the country. It does not mean to stand by the president or any other public official, save exactly to the degree in which he himself stands by the country. It is patriotic to support him insofar as he efficiently serves the country. It is unpatriotic not to oppose him to the exact extent that by inefficiency or otherwise he fails in his duty to stand by the country. In either event, it is unpatriotic not to tell the truth, whether about the president or anyone else. I picture Machiavelli watching Teddy Roosevelt give this speech. Machiavelli, I think, would nod as if in silent agreement. And then he would go back and tell his prince, watch out for this guy. He's freaking dangerous. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to new Patreon Robert Stewart, and in fact, to all my Patreons. That's patreon.com slash literature if you want to join the club. <laughs> the Merry Band. The few, the happy few. We'll be back soon with another episode you won't want to miss. So subscribe now and tell all your friends. And if things get too tough out there and your mind is spinning from news overload, try a little literature, a little Machiavelli like an after-dinner mint. Or find a new world altogether and immerse yourself in that. I know a woman who survived the worst of the Tiananmen Square days by protesting by day and reading Proust by night. What a life she was living. We should all learn from that example. Armed with our books and our minds and our open hearts, we will survive. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>